Welcome and good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the May 7, 2019 edition of Ask a Leader. Today I'll have on Professor Rachel Bittekoffer, polling forecaster and assistant director of the Wayson Center for Public Policy at Christopher Newport University, and she knows how to call them and will offer many pronouncements that may surprise. First stop, Orange County, congressional districts, and on to the broader national picture for 2020 and beyond. Then in the second segment, Bob Inglis, executive director of Republic N. Org and former congressman from South Carolina will return to the show to gauge the change in the political discussion of climate change and the value he sees in the Green New Deal, along with the Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act. Okay, we'll be right back after a short station break. All right, welcome back to the show. My first guest is Rachel Bittekoffer. She's Assistant Director of the Wayson Center for Public Policy at Christopher Newport University in Virginia, where she teaches classes on political behavior, campaigns, elections, and political analysis, and the campus wherein she has invented the Sanders and Biden turn lanes. In her position with the Mason Center, she conducts survey research on public policy issues and election campaigns. Rachel completed her Bachelor's of Science in Political Science at the University of Oregon and her PhD in Political Science at the University of Georgia. You may have seen her, the Washington Post, USA Today, Huffington Post, and she had a, quite the article at the beginning of this year in uh, New York Times about her calling it, and uh, also on National Public Radio, and she's a regular contributor on CBC Radio. I believe that's the Canadian, Canadian broadcasting system. That The best and the brightest retweet her commentary. That's how we met. Her book, The Unprecedented 2016 Presidential Elections, published by Palgrave Macmillan. Rachel, last June, way, way ahead of the November 2018 midterm elections, called how many congressional districts would flip from red to blue. If anyone has the national voter file, she'd like you to leave it with her right after class. She, <laughs> she comes. A very, very expensive national oh, voter file. Oh, okay, all right. Well, but it's, but it would be put to good use in Rachel's grasp. She comes to us today from Newport News, Virginia, here to make us better consumers of political polling. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Rachel Bittekoffer. Well, thank you so much for having me. Well, you're a get. Rachel's just, she's just so applied and all. And when you get somebody like her on, it's time to like bore through a lot. And we have such a lot to cover. So your projections, Rachel, were early and they were accurate. What makes your analysis distinct from others? What makes it more real world than the others? We're talking to you, Nate. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, I mean, I, I hate to brag, but I will take a victory lap here and point out that not only were my forecasts early and accurate, accurate, it was more early and more accurate than anybody else, including the uh, big dogs in the forecasting business, and uh, particularly in one place in particular, and that would be Orange County, a uh, former Reagan country where nobody else expected Democrats to do a clean sweep. And I 
anticipated it. Now, I'll explain how and why. Please. Uh, it's, it's due to the uniqueness of my methodology. Okay. It's a very different methodology. It's um, a politi- more political science-oriented methodology than what you would see on 538 or one of the election forecasting um, mainstream media outlets. It's based on, um, and the reason I say that is it's based on new theory, right? So what drives political science research is, is coming up with new theories and new explanations for political phenomena. And one of the main things that political scientists in my area are studying right now, as you can probably imagine, is something called political polarization. And, and it's manifesting in many ways, but one of the ways that I study it is in elections, and so I anticipated that due to the election of Donald Trump, there would be a massive backlash effect of um, Democratic voters who were previously latent and um, lazy about showing up to vote, and so I was able to identify places like Orange County that had a lot of untapped voter pool that could be mobilized uh, to vote from this uh, threat of Donald Trump, and that's how I was free of uh, free of polling and free of you know getting close to the election, able to say that's where the epicenter is going to come from, and so that's how I was able to look at Orange County, really even before the campaign started, and say that's that's going to be one of the most um, you know uh, ground shaking earthquake uh, places in the country. Well, we had journalists coming to us a good year and a half before the the actual November midterm election. So that, that there were people that were all keep were watching very closely. And yes, so mm-hmm. it was a marvel to see. So you start with Orange County and you're looking around. What are some other pockets you're keeping your eye peeled on now? Yeah, so what my model was able to do was to look at the, I was looking really at, at a couple of things, mainly college education and urbanicity and diversity, right? So um, I was able to look at these 435 congressional districts. Yes, the previous performance was a metric I was using within reason, because as many people are listening to this will know, yes, uh, there's a lot of gerrymandering in the House of Representatives. Um, but to some degree, it's it's an it's an it's a misleading metric because a lot of the um, vote share underperformed just from um, Democratic voter laziness, I guess I would say. Yes. Uh, so, like, even though gerrymandering is a problem, voter laziness is also a problem. So, I, you know, I was able to look and say, okay, this is something that won't get on Crystal Ball or 538's radar because it hasn't been competitive because Democrats have not shown up to vote, but it could be competitive if, you know, I'm right about this Trump effect. So any place in the country in which a district tapped into an urban or suburban population that was highly educated especially was prone to this effect. And that's why when um, I dropped my forecast that predicted a 42-seat change exactly on July 1st, the um, bigwigs were still talking about whether or not Democrats could really flip 23 seats and pick up control of the House. Now, I didn't know about your work until way after the midterm, so I, I, I think I was only in suspense, heightened suspense for 10 months is all. It was, it was a lot a lot of suspense right. inside Orange so there County. Was, there was like one or two seats in Orange County that were very obviously going to be competitive, but not five. Right, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So the we were talking in preparation, we're talking about 
the media coverage and the difficulty for nuance to make it into uh, the uh, put it on the radar of likely voters uh, to be engaged more fully in, of voters. What is talk to us about what what kind of media makes you hopeful that there's going to be continued sustained electoral engagement around the country? Well, I mean, and here I will be both hopeful and pessimistic. Okay. Right. So in the short term. Um, as long as Donald Trump is sitting in the Oval Office and doing what Donald Trump does best, so seeds of chaos and, you know, institution destruction, uh, I have no doubt that Democrats are going to stay engaged and enthusiastic to vote, which is good because Democrats have numbers advantage in many places. I mean, you saw what happens when they flex their numbers muscle in 2018. It was, um, you know, a massive effect. And if they had flexed that muscles advantage in 2016, you know, we would not be having this conversation, right? Uh, you know, Hillary Clinton would have been president, right? Um, but, you know, I do also in my research point out that once that catalyst is removed, my expectation is Democrats will recede their participation back. And because Republicans are just much, much better at participating, and, and that's not entirely just because Republicans are more civically oriented, they are, and more homogenous, they are, and uh, easier to get to vote, they are. It's also because the campaigns are better in the Republican camp at understanding what it is, what, how elections are determined by turnout of partisan voters, and what gets people to vote, emotions, right? So my guess is we're seeing a short-term renaissance, and, you know, Unless the Supreme Court goes wild, uh, I don't know that we're going to see a sustained renaissance. So one thing I, I would like to know is, though, where the vote suppression, I'm not talking about the gerrymandering brand of voter suppression, but where what we've seen in some places, and these was we're, we're coming from Orange County, we have the gold standard of election oversight. We've got a really great registrar of voters manager here, and, and he's nationally involved with trying to keep maintain the standard. But can you account for that factor of suppression? And we're seeing yesterday there's a state Texas legislator that's going to try to make it illegal to drive seniors in a bus to a polling place. I mean, the, all that, all those kinds of things. How do you factor in those kind of dings of getting people to turn out? Yeah, that would be an interesting strategy um, for a um, suppression effort. Uh, I have, to, I haven't seen that news report. I mean, for, if I was a Republican, I would want every old person I could find to vote because under the realignment model that we're seeing here, oh. older people are voting more and more with the Republican Party. <laughs> really? So, you know, getting seniors to the polls seems like a, a good strategy unless they happen to be people of color. And then, they, of course, I would understand that strategy better. But, yes, the suppression efforts are a real and, and I mean, it's not an illusion, right? I mean, you make it harder for people to vote if there's a reason that you want them not to vote. And uh, I think it would be naive to pretend that um, the reasons cited are legitimate reasons when there's no data to support them. So the idea that you're trying to enshrine or protect or ward off um, against, you know, problems that are, cannot be quantified and have not been able to be quantified o over multiple attempts 
should be called out for what they are, right? They are suppression efforts and they're strategic moves to, you know, deal with this demographic issue where you are becoming um, at a democratic demographic disadvantage. But Republicans are just very, you know, willing Savvy. to do what they will do to win elections. And, you know, it, it doesn't help if you sit on the sidelines and yell, well, that's just not fair, because ultimately it, what matters is who wins, right? So when we look at the gubernatorial election in Georgia, right. you know, it was not conducted fairly in terms of, you know, access to the polls, but who won the election, you know? Uh, when Stacey Abrams is not the governor of Georgia, the results are not contested. The courts did not throw that out. And, you know, life is going on in the state of Georgia. So the incentive to engage in that kind of activity is, is there, and there's not much punishment for it. So, you know, I think the um, there's an old saying, you could light a candle or curse the darkness, right, right? right? Well, the darkness is there. So in terms of what Democrats do with that, then, you know, if you, on one side, in places where they do have control of voting apparatus, they should be liberalizing access to the ballot box as much as possible. But, and, but, you know, and then in places where they're going to be dealing with suppression efforts, then you it's baked into the cake and it's um, unfortunate, but you have to just power through it. So I understand that as a tactic. That's really clear. I think listeners do, too. But how do pollsters, though, account for that factor in outcomes can you well, you so, can see so, it coming um, it's yeah, institutionalized that's a so i can account for that like if i was polling in a state virginia does not have we don't have a very liberalized voting system but for some reason and, and this is actually not a, for some reason the reason is we have a very highly educated and higher income electorate than normal because of the northern virginia area so we have pretty high rates of civic engagement, voting participation, given that we don't really have like early voting or a very liberalized voting system. Okay. But we don't have an active suppression effort like you would see in Georgia or Texas or North Carolina and South Carolina. Mm-hmm. But the way that I would account for that, say, if I was a pollster in Georgia, is I, when you're looking at a survey, what you're, what you're doing is imposing a weighting system on your data that's trying to approximate the demographic composition of the electorate. What is it going to look like in terms of its racial composition, its age composition, what have you. So if I know that there are going to be suppression efforts in the state of Georgia in a gubernatorial election, then when I'm weighting my polls, I'm going to try to take into account that target there will be hurdles. Yes. They are weighted lower as a likely voter. All yes, right. absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. And so let's say if I was to wave a magic wand tomorrow and redo the Georgia election and, and take away those barriers to voting that occurred, then, you know, Stacey Abrams almost certainly would have won the election. Right. right but that's <laughs> and that just seems so unseemly, though, is that we're all having to sort of react to that reality. There is suppression. It's so undemocratic. So sort of like we're sort of bending over backwards to sort of keep factoring and accounting for that so that's that's kind of disturbing my guess well, it if, is disturbing yes, I mean, it, it's, it, it is disturbing but i guess for me what's mo- the most disturbing element of all of that is that it happens it happens in pr- plain sight enough where we can talk about it yeah, in a exactly. logical fairly dispassionate way on a radio show um you know there's massive you know significant media coverage of it and yet no one cares i mean the average american doesn't know about it because they don't pay attention to the news and you know there's not 
protest in the streets about it. So, you know, I mean, it's it's uh, well, there's a lot to be protesting is that when every time I hear that refrain, there's nobody's turning out. It's because there we're like rats on a matrix of a grid that's electrocuting us on different squares. And we're sort of keeping the. That, as they say, and we're running all over the place trying to avoid getting shocked, public right, policy. Right. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Rachel Bittekoffer, and she's Assistant Director of the Wayson Center for Public Policy at Christopher Newport University in Virginia, and out in front with some really rapid, accurate polling and forecasting analysis. One other factor, I don't know that you're including this in your analysis, is, and I'm speaking personally about the constituents in the Orange County congressional delegation that we are getting a really interesting new taste of what true governing looks and feels like. And would that offer a factor for voting turnout? So uh, could you be more specific as to well, what you mean by there's that? There's access. That I'm not in the area? We, we have access. We have, uh, there are offices that are set up. The doors are open. You can walk oh. into the offices that your your the, the press gets answered by those offices. And right, we see right. the 45th Congressional District representative, we see that person on YouTube's going viral talking to Jamie Dimon about the disparity of yeah, income right. levels within his bank. So, and we're, that's Katie Porter, yes. That's Katie Porter doing yes. But So we are getting a taste of what governing looks like as opposed to watching our previous congressional representative tweeting about a, a French treaty that's over 300 years old and, you know, trying to sort of take our minds off of what's blowing up presently. I mean, it's just, it's such a new day. So does that... For that constituent experience, is that a factor in what polling can tell us about the next electoral outcomes? Well, it's not a factor in what polling can tell us. I mean, but we can theorize about the effect that that has on citizens, right? So, um, you know, one of the issues that we're experiencing collectively in America is a 30- or 40-year collective attack on the integrity of government. The narrative about government is almost always negative. It's been negative since Watergate in Vietnam. So most people have a negative view of government. The things that get covered about government, and this is true about everything, is are negative things. I mean, that's just the, the way things are. You don't cover things when they're functioning well. You cover things that are functioning poorly. So, um, you know, being able to access uh, representation, to see these offices functioning, to see these members engaging with members of the community, to see constituent services functioning well. Those are all things that, that will have a positive impact, you know, that could promote more civic engagement. But it takes, you know, here's the thing that I would, I would remind you of, okay. is that you live you are atypical, and the people listening to this program are highly atypical, and I mean that you are like in the 1%, not the economic 1%, the intellectual 1%, the political 1%. So like the you say these things are happening, and it's true, and they but are it's having lost a benefit. on the public. That, yeah, but not to the broader public much, right? So you have to keep in mind, you know, if I was trying to pull that, it would have no effect at all. I mean, keep in mind... 
you know, even in the Democratic primary, most Democratic primary voters who are of themselves not typical Americans because they're Democratic primary voters, so they're more highly engaged than the average American, don't know who Beto O'Rourke is at this time. They don't know who Pete Buttigieg is, right? They, yep. they uh, you know, we are very, we are freaks. <laughs> so, like, you know, we need a much more intensive and aggregated effort to reach these citizens that are not listening to your radio show. Okay. So what are the polling questions that really matter? Let's say going into 2020. We'll get to 2022 maybe later, but what questions really matter at this point? So the questions that really matter at this point are the, um, you know, elements of name recognition. So when we look at this field of 25 candidates right now, like I just pointed out, most people do not know who the candidates are. Yes. So if you imagine being on the receiving end of that telephone call or, or the internet survey where you have this list of just intimidating names, and, and, and we're talking about like people who don't, I mean, there are many Californians who do not know who Kamala Harris is, right? Right. And uh, let alone Beto O'Rourke, the guy from Texas. So, you know, I am, if I am a liberal, more liberal person, I might go with Bernie Sanders, because at least I know who that guy is, and I know he's more liberal. Um, Name recognition. And if I'm more moderate, I'm going to go with Joe Biden, because I know who that guy is, and he's more, you know, moderate. So we really don't have a great sense of the race until we get into the fall. What we're, what we're in right now is called the invisible primary. Yes. And even within that primary, invisible primary, we are in the invisible, invisible primary because when they made the term invisible primary, they were talking about the fall. Uh, they, like the, a world in which we would have this amount of media coverage and this amount of polling in March and February of the year before the primaries, that predates the term invisible primary. I see. So, you know, we are really talking about a vacuum of attention where a very, very select group of people are paying attention. And you say that the invisible primary will go away after the Iowa caucus this summer. Yes, I, I think uh, uh, the Iowa State Fair. Oh, the State um, Fair, the sorry. Iowa State Fair will trigger the start of the formal invisible primary which will wage through September and that's when like um, you know normal invisible primary activity used to begin and really um, ramp up was in that September October November and then December January was you know the lead up to the Iowa caucuses so we are in a perpetual campaign state now the media is there's so much more media. I'm working on an article right now, like oh. literally right now about this. There's so much more media coverage and polling than there used to be, and, it, and the season is so much longer than it used to be that it, for us it feels like it has been going on forever. But if you were to go and find your average Democratic person and ask them about many of the things that you're obsessed about, they would have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> okay, that's the divide. <laughs> Yeah. So, so Rachel, um, we'll be privy to more forums during this election. For example, the She the People Forum, and right. they're going to be having three to four more. None of them are in California. I'm a little surprised about that. I think the closest one's going to be in Arizona. Uh, so, and I'm uh, personally, I'm interested in, in looking where there's a potential for a municipal forum for that. There's going to be an Asians Rising Pack that's going to have a presidential forum. 
uh, around the, the Labor Day weekend, they're going to have a, a forum, the, the last of their, their convening there. Will these forums be effective now, and we were talking about the divide of those that are in the know and those that are out of the know. Would these forms be effective in promoting a deeper and more engaged uh, public in elections? No, because these forums are, again, I mean, what, what we're really doing with these forums is we're having a deeper and more engaged conversation with the same people that same we're having. Crowd deep and engaged conversations with. <laughs> we're not expanding very much that, that pool of people. Um, that's really the big puzzle right now is how do you get, how do you reach the, the you know, 90% of Americans who are tuned out of civics right now? If I was to run a national survey right now and do American adults in the survey and ask them to name the three branches of government, probably only a third would be able to do so. Well, that's so, pretty amazing. You know, I mean, that's, that's, and I'm not kidding, you know, like I'm guessing somewhere probably 35, 36 percent would be able to say legislative, executive and judicial. Well, I've noticed that I'm, I, I think I maybe have said this. Sorry, listeners, if you've been hearing this too much on my mic, but I'm allowed to ask by any complete stranger, are they registered to vote and do they know who their Congress member is? And um, that, that's interesting in itself. People allow that question of a total stranger. But I noticed only around, I'm going to say rounding upward, around 90% don't know who their congressional members is. And it's people that I thought would be more sophisticated because of what the forum is, what the, the setting is that I'm asking them that question. So that the three branches, one thing, and who's, I mean, all they have to know is one congressional member that represents them is kind of amazing. Well, yeah. the last question I want to fire off here before I let you go is it's a, it's a great time to ask you, an analyst with a stake in forecasting, when does polling become more than just a signal and become a sort of a manipulating influence? Because some so countries, polling, some polling countries just can do that, definitely. right? Because some yep. countries just ban them. I remember uh, watching a, a very interesting kind of a, a an election in all over Spain, and in 2004, we got to watch that pretty close from uh, Catalonia at that time, and like five days before, it stopped. There were no surveys, and that was when there was an al-Qaeda attack in Madrid, and that, that five days in that window, a ton of the political behavior really refocused its intent. So talk a little bit about that as our, our last question together today. The manipulating yeah, sure, influence sure. of polls. Yeah, so number one, polling can impact public opinion, and polling results can ha- impact public opinion. And I, I you know, one of the, a great example of that would be Pete Buttigieg, right? Okay. So, uh, you know, as Pete Buttigieg got some media attention and the media started talking about him as a viable candidate, he started to move up in the polls, and then as the polls were reported that he was moving up in the polls. He started to move up more in the polls. And we and I'm picking on him, but, like, this is a pretty standard feature of classic. presidential nomination campaigns. So, like, uh, you know, media, it's not just polling, but media, too. Both have effects on public opinion. So that is why um, other countries are much more regulatory in terms of what uh, – we are the Wild West of election campaigns, and as you saw – in 2016, 2018, okay. 2020, that has now been weaponized against us. So, right. um, you know, it, 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 this is another feature of the article I'm working on for Mistress of 
and, and in my current book project, how our, our election campaign like system, the entire system, not just the campaign finance system, it really is It's unique and very dangerous in many ways. Well, that is all the time. I know we've got more questions, and I hope I can sort of have you on hold uh, for a, a later appearance. My guest was Rachel Bittekoffer, Assistant Director of the Wayson Center for Public Policy at Christopher Newport in Virginia, and out in front with her astute polling and forecasting. Thanks for your time being on the show today, Rachel Bittekoffer. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. So I, we are going to lift every voice in the polling, I hope. So we're going to be back after a short station break with Congressman Bob Inglis, the Executive Director of Republic N. Tina Raymond's left, right, left track, lift every voice and sing. Something to follow pollsters with. Thanks for staying tuned, all. We are back here on Ask a Leader. The, the UN assessment of the decline of biodiversity issued yesterday, along with recent evidence of climate change, raises with increased urgency our need to examine the tools within and certainly beyond our grasp to address this catastrophe. Returning to Ask a Leader to take this up is my next guest, the perpetual optimist, Congressman Bob Inglis. He served in U.S. Congress from 1993 to 98, representing Greenville, Spartanburg, South Carolina, and then he challenged Senator Hollings in 98 and returned to the practice of commercial real estate in Greenville, South Carolina. After in 2004, he was reelected to Congress. But in 2010, I'm not sure, Mr. Inglis, if you're just fed up with hearing about this, but it's 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 a factor. It, we, we talk about being primary. You were primaried in 2010 by your own party because of the work on climate change. Since 2011, he's been focusing on promoting free enterprise action on climate change and launched the Energy and Enterprise Initiative at George Mason University in July 2012 and was renamed republicn.org and it's a growing grassroots community hosted at the George Mason University. For this work, he was given the 2015 John F. Kennedy Profile in Courage Award. He appears in the film Merchants of Doubt in the TV series Years of Living Dangerously at TEDx Jacksonville, TEDx Beacon Street. And some of you may have heard Bob Inglis on his This American Life uh, segment, Hot in My Backyard Story. Bob Inglis completed his undergraduate work at Duke University and his law degree at the University of Virginia School of Law, was a resident fellow at Harvard University's Institute of Politics in 2011, visiting energy fellow at Duke University Nicholas School Environment in 2012, and resident fellow at the University of Chicago's Institute of Politics in 2014. He comes to us today from Traveler's Rest, South Carolina. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Bob Inglis. Good to be with you, Claudia. Thank you. Thank you. Well, lots has happened since you were on this show right after Thanksgiving last November. We've had some devastating forest fires and some other intense winter storms in the U.S. and huge Storms in the South Pacific, I mean, I can't, I, I'm not going to be able to name them all. We have a new Congress. And then we have this grim report issued yesterday by the UN on biodiversity. And so in the interest of time, I'm going to set aside the science 
it's established, and we've covered a lot on the show as well. I'd like to focus today on the institutions, policy, and innovation. So are you sensing any shifts in the congressional perception of the urgency in climate change? Yes, um, I think it's, it's turning around, and it's really pretty exciting. We're, we're emerging from a decade of disputing the science, and it's pretty exciting to see conservatives starting to enter the competition of ideas. Um, so probably the best evidence of that is uh, February 6th uh, of this year, press release from the Republican side of the House Energy and Commerce Committee. The headline said, Republicans are focused on practical solutions to climate change, which is uh, pretty amazing. So I think it has to do with several things, one of them being the uh, the loss of the House by Republicans in the uh, 2018 election. It has to do with experiences of climate change, as you were just referencing. Um, it has to do with the economy being fairly good, um, so people can focus on a bit longer-term issues. And um, it has to do with groups like ours that are at RepublicEN.org, who are helping people to hear this uh, in conservative language rather than just the progressive language that has uh, dominated the climate change conversation. So we see already, too, that the composition and the leadership of the science and tech committees, uh, as well as, you know, different... New, now it's sort of the agendas are to move on with this, and then there's the infrastructure committee. Well... I, I, there's a couple of different analogies I want to go with. I guess one is I'd like to bring up with you. Is so if we, I guess the way I see the different sensibilities going on in Congress is that, that those that have been working on climate change are trying to put, they're trying to apply more pressure on the accelerator pedal. And some are maybe trying to just, they've got their foot on the clutch. And some are maybe just moving slower on the on the accelerator pedal. We've got sort of different pedals being used, but um, I think, how do you see us getting on, accelerating at a similar rate so the urgency can be taken up to collectively? Well, yes, it, it is, uh, you know, it's important that uh, we figure out a way to make this bipartisan because by making it bipartisan, we will make it uh, durable. Um, and that's just a very important part of what we're about at republicen.org because, you know, what uh, Obamacare proves, for example, is if one party does it by themselves and the pendulum swings, it can be wrecked by the swinging of that pendulum. And so it's very important that we um, make this new policy about uh, bringing in a, uh, a climate constraint, a carbon constrained future. Uh, we do it together. And so all it takes is, therefore, maybe 25 House Republicans, 12 to 15 Senate Republicans, and we've got a bipartisan majority. And that, that we think, is very attainable by the year 2022. So um, it's going to take a little while. It's, it's not going to be, I don't think, in this current Congress, but in the next one, uh, we have a shot at it. So with the there's now an infrastructure package and it's uh, only two trillion dollars are being knocked around right now and so i guess what what i want to do is be really brutally honest about what opportunity costs 
are in this situation if the trillion, $2 trillion infrastructure package goes forth in a piecemeal approach uh, with conventional fixes? We're, we're, you and I are talking about some real urgency. How do you, what do you see as the, the way to con- debate this through, to get on to the real essence of, of the solving the climate versus the conventional fixes? Because I'll break it down a little bit more in, in a bit. But what, what, what do you do with this opportunity in this negotiation? It's happening right, you know, hour to hour right now. Yeah, of course, uh, some of that uh, infrastructure spending may be on adaptation to climate change, um, and that will be, uh, we think that helps get the mind moving toward mitigation, you know. In other words, uh, adaptation is where you're adapting to the problem of climate change by building a higher seawall. When you do that, it does focus the mind on, well, how could we avoid this problem in the first place? Right. Um, You know, uh, uh, if you're in Charleston, South Carolina, at the Battery, uh, it's a beautiful spot, you know, and it's uh, very, uh, very desirable real estate there. And you start building a higher seawall, and you think, well, how high is this thing going to go before I can't see over it? And so then you start thinking, well, is there some way we could head off sea level rise? And, of course, that's mitigation. And and so we're, we're grateful for the infrastructure bill because it may have, uh, you know, it may may have uh, the ability to help people focus the mind. But what we're really focused on is um, is getting to that mitigation piece, figuring out a way to head off the worst of the damages of climate change. Okay. And so the the Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act and the Green New Deal, they're sort of, the press is kind of having a, a circus with trying to sort of pit them against each other. So what do you see is the is a the sort of collective feature of both of those moving forward for the the most aspirational sorts of outcomes approaches. Yeah, well, I think it's what we've got. You know, when I when I first heard of the uh, Green New Deal, uh, remember I'm I'm this guy that represented a conservative district, have quite a conservative voting record, and I work among conservatives now, uh, talking to them about climate action. I thought, oh my goodness, this is awful. Uh, now climate change is going to be equated with socialism, uh, which is not a good uh, equation if you're talking about the places where we're trying to operate. But then uh, time went on a little bit, and of course I can't change that. I mean, I, I, can't, uh, I can't affect what AOC does, so she's doing it. Um, Alexandria Octavio-Cortez. Mm-hmm. Time went on, and what, what we're now seeing is that Perhaps what she's done uh, very effectively is create real energy and enthusiasm for climate action. And it's caused uh, Matt Gates, for example, of Florida First District, um, a Republican, a Trump supporter, to propose an alternative call, that he calls the Green Realty. Right. Um, it, like hers, is, is a little bit of a manifesto. But the point is that Apparently, her enthusiasm caused him to feel a need to respond, a little bit like the cheer we all did in middle school, you know, during Spirit Week. Um, it's sort of, except now it's, I got a solution. Yes, we do. We got a solution. How about you? You know, and that's the cheer across the middle school gym. And so maybe it's working in climate change. Well, I I guess they're yeah they're pulling different constituencies. One one constituency's been heard a great deal, and the other one is 
proposing that there's an unheard constituency that's been affected most by the externalities of the things that are drivers of that kind of. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest here is Bob Inglis, Executive Director of Republic EN and former congressman from South Carolina. Republic N is a community of conservatives and libertarians advancing free enterprise climate policy. I think you and I agree that it's at the front of the pipeline, the very front end, preventing these footprints, the, these massive carbon and water footprints uh, from having this impact on all the, the global climate trends. And so there are markets out there. I'd like to know what in your work at Republican is doing to facilitate the markets to bring in innovation to overcome the systemic barriers that are just nibbling around the edges that really aren't, they're not, they're very small fixes. Yes. And that's now you're really, uh, you're, you're singing our tune. That's what we think is so powerful about the free enterprise system and this market signal that we'd like to see in the energy innovation carbon dividend act that you just mentioned um, is a pricing mechanism, which we think is a fabulous way to deal with the problem of, climate change. And so um, it's actually, um, if you will, it's, it's it's a little bit more bold than what AOC is talking about, because what the Green New Deal and AOC is talking about are American-only domestic proposals. And what uh, the Energy Innovation Carbon Dividend Act and other uh, carbon pricing mechanisms can do is actually get the whole world in on climate action. Um, using the strength of the American market to say, okay, we know you want access to our market. You want to sell us stuff at Walmart. Okay, well, we're happy to trade. Uh, normally, that's what we Republicans think. Um, uh, right now, we're in a different phase, uh, but we'll come back to ourselves, I think. Um, and so we're normally for trade, and the idea would be if you bring your goods here, you're going to pay our carbon tax on those goods on entry into the American market unless you have the same carbon price at home. Now, if you have that same carbon price at home, your goods come in without any border adjustment, it's called. But if you don't have the same carbon price, then we collect that tax. And, oh, the tax ends up in Washington. Well, that makes it in every trading partner's interest to do it at home so that they can keep the tax money at home, collect their own tax, their own carbon tax, and then their goods would come through our ports without any border adjustment for the carbon tax. And so it's a way of, of America using the strength of its marketplace to lead the world to a solution. And Claudia, did you notice that what I was talking about there is involved no international agreement. We at RepublicEN.org think that we should not be withdrawing from Paris. It's right. an expression of the, the will that we should remain in Paris. But did you notice in what I was – it establishes a will but not a way. What I've just described creates a way to meet the will. And so – but it involves no international agreement. It involves no long negotiations at the U.N. or bowing and scraping there. It involves simply – a bold move by the United States that says, we're going to price carbon dioxide and uh, the rest of the world, you're going to find it in your interest to do the same thing. 
And so then you've got 7 billion people seeing the true cost of energy and uh, demanding innovation. Then the market becomes a prize and investors marry inventors and products that are currently on the lab shelf end up on shelves in stores and in pipelines and in, uh, on, the, on the wires uh, to power our houses and our businesses. And so it's an exciting message of innovation that comes through a fix to the economics. So and I'm, I have to give full disclosure that I'm involved with a, a water engineering proposition that's dealing with the closed loop idea. And you were talking about the true cost of energy, and there's a, a true cost of our water footprints in, in industry and, you know, in, the, in our residences. So it's one example of a younger company that's trying to get the funding to be deployed, but we have such huge institutional barriers that are only fixing. I'm, I'm going back to the fixes with all of the, the water distribution and the water, sort of the whole business model of distributing water. And how does Republic N deal with trying to introduce mechanisms to bring the newer, younger companies on that want to really address the water footprints, the energy footprints, the yeah, new companies. It's is a very analogous situation. Of course, we're dealing with carbon emissions and not water, but it's a, exactly analogous is that same thing happens that you just described in water happens in electrical generation, for example, is that there are ways to make electricity that don't involve burning fossil fuels, but those are disadvantaged by the fact that the institutional advantage given to the burning of fossil fuels is, uh, well, there's some direct subsidies, but then there's the, the huge indirect or implicit subsidy of the lack of accountability for what we're doing to the air when you burn those fossil fuels. And so the health damages that are caused by the burning of those fossil fuels and the climate damages are not accounted to that fossil fuel burning electrical generator. If they were, then those companies, it's like what you're talking about in water, that are out there and ready to deliver electrons in a different way or from a different source, they can't compete because of the implicit subsidy given in the lack of accountability for those emissions. And so we, at Republican.org, we believe that if you level the playing field and make everybody simply accountable and fix the economics, then the environment will take care of itself. What we have here is a problem of economics that has an environmental consequence. So I, we know in California, that's like the adage here at in every sort of infrastructure meeting is that 20% of California's energy tab is pulling water from one place to the next. So it's really the nexus for the, the water and energy is very closely observed here. So it's, a, it's why I sort of continue to try to raise the profile of that nexus so that we can see what the, what the waste 
you know, is racking up in our general tab. Yeah. Well, I need to wind this all down. So I don't know if you have any mechanisms uh, in mind as the last sort of answer. We, we've talked about the Congressional Infrastructure Bill just a wee bit and the persistence for infrastructure. So any one, one or two specific things that you want to sign off with us? Well, I think the, the most important thing is that we've We've got to find a way for conservatives to find their voice on climate and to step forward. So um, people who are listening to us now who are uh, progressives, if you can send your conservative friends to check us out at republicen.org, they'd find that language. If you're a conservative listening to us, we really need you to be visible. And we at republicen.org, along with some other groups, can help you amplify your voice so that uh, elected officials can know that there's a constituency out there ready to act on climate change with conservative principles. Well, unfortunately, we do not have any more time, and I'm so glad that you're making yourself available with all that you've got going on. My guest was Bob Inglis, Executive Director of Republic EN and former Congressman of South Carolina, and his Republic EN is a community, conservatives and libertarians, advancing free enterprise climate policy. Bob Inglis, thank you again for being on Ask a Leader. Thanks so much, Claudia. Great to be with you. Thank you. Well, that was my wrap here. Next week, I'm going to have on UCI Engineering PhD candidate Kimberly Dong, and she'll be joined by Gyan Alum, senior earth system scientist at UCI, taking up some effective communication and bridging research with general public to increase their literacy, and their tools are pretty impressive. I want to thank everyone for listening to Ask a Leader. Talk to you next week.